Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Surprising interviews, your favorite podcasts, and now an easy way to listen to your favorite station live. NPR One's ready to make driving, commuting, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know the saying when one door closes, another opens? That something terrible, like losing your job or getting dumped, ends up creating a new opportunity? Kind of a cliche. But take Pete Holmes. He's a stand-up comic. He's got a brand-new TV show on HBO. It's called Crashing. He's doing pretty great now. And if you ask Pete, he owes all of it to his failed marriage. That you get home and, and, and your wife is very cold and distant I, because I didn't know she's in love with somebody else and she feels terrible about that and she's living this double life. So when she told me, I would say it was probably 80 or 90 percent devastation and shock. I didn't see it coming at all. Uh, and then there was – but there was this glorious sort of 10 percent of like, oh, I can, I can get out of here. It's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Pete about his new show. A lot of it's based on his own life, back when he was a struggling comic. He'll tell me why, when it came time to finally make Crashing, New York was the only place it could happen. New York is the perfect embodiment of comedy. It doesn't need you. It doesn't want you. It won't notice if you pack your bags and go home. It will keep pulsing. Then I'll talk with Mike Mills. He wrote and directed 20th Century Women. Movies up for the Best Original Screenplay Oscar. He says that in a lot of his movies, he avoids those classic kind of feel-good moments where the character changes their life's direction completely. Because, you know, who actually does that? Uh, I don't like a lot of transformation in my character, especially in a film. Like in a novel, yeah, because a novel, it's so much easier to have an expansive amount of time. I don't buy it when epiphanies happen and large transformations happen. I barely buy it in real life. Plus, I'll tell you about Babe Pig in the City and how almost no other movie can make me cry just talking about it. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Pete Holmes. He's the creator and star of HBO's Crashing. Semi-autobiographical. He plays Pete, an aspiring comedian living in New York. And at the beginning of the series... He leaves his wife. He starts couch surfing around the city, and his character's made a decision. He's going to pull out all the stops and finally give stand-up comedy a real go. A lot of the show's based on Pete's real life. He really did get divorced at a young age. He really did start out in the New York comedy club scene. As a stand-up, Pete's observational. In the tradition of comics like Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano, he's bright, cheerful, kind of goofy, and a lot of fun to watch. Pete also put out a stand-up special late last year, also on HBO. It's called Faces and Sounds. Here's a little bit of it. I'm an easy laugh. I am an easy laugh. I don't know why people always make fun of people that are easy laughs. They're like, look at that idiot. Walking around, chuckling and feeling joy and silliness through all of his days. What a moron. Worse than that, people are proud of being hard laughs. Hard laughs. They go around like, yeah, I laughed at that movie. And I'm a hard laugh. 
It's hard to make me laugh. I'm like, yeah, work on that. What are you, Nosferatu? Let some sunlight onto your soul. Like, no, I got barbed wire around my heart. Nothing gets in or out. You got to trick me to make my joy noise. Is that my special? Yeah, that's your special. That's you doing comedy, Pete. It sounds great. Pete Holmes, welcome to, <laughs> welcome to Bullseye, by the way. Sure if you, thank you very much, Jesse. I, I, I wasn't sure if you had found some other time I had performed that bit or something. And I was hoping, secretly, <laughs> that that was my special because I was like, oh, good. Like, I sound relaxed. You know what I mean? When you're doing a comedy special, it's so <laughs> juiced. And there's a thousand people yeah. and there's cameras. And I was like, oh, good. It sounds like a regular show. You've seen your upcoming HBO hour long. I've seen it once or twice. (laughs) You didn't just go out on stage and then leave and like, Ooh, I hope somebody does something with that. Right. We did have such a a good team that my first special nice try the devil. I were, I saw maybe a thousand times I had to, I was involved in the editing. Uh, to be frank, that, that one required some sweetening. You Uh know what I mean? Adding laughs because I was just like, I've done this hour a hundred, 200 times. And when we taped it, I just didn't think, I'm very, I can be cocky sometimes about my stand-up, and I was like, they just weren't laughing when I know most audiences laugh. Like, let's say I had done it 200 times. 198 times people would applaud at this bit or laugh in a certain way because there's all this, like, language to laughter. And they do this sort of titillated, high-pitched laugh. Like, I knew. I had done it so many times. And then when I taped, this is, this is for the old special, there just maybe wasn't a laugh there. And I was like, well, that's unacceptable. So (laughs) even though I think most people would consider sweetening to be cheating, and I understand that, I was trying to make a special that represented what it was like most of the time. And that the taping was a bit of a fluke. But with uh, this one, Faces and Sounds, it was just a dream show. So I did it. I let them edit it. I watched it. I showed it to a couple friends. But I haven't seen it enough times. uh, And and I, I hadn't... Like drilled it. I don't believe in drilling an hour in a specific order. And sometimes they change. And sometimes like a joy noise is something I, I hadn't said, I think, before. And except when I go, you got to trick me into making my joy noise. I was like, hey, joy noise. So there's still surprises. When I was just listening to that, I can still authentically laugh at it because uh, I'm not worried about the audience not being hot because they were great. And uh, I haven't heard it so many times that it's boring to me. Yeah, I actually want to play a moment from Crashing. Yes. Um, And in the pilot of the show, uh, you, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's like seven minutes in, you discover your wife cheating on you. And then you go immediately to watch a comedy show. Yeah. A comic you know lets you in to a club that you haven't played before, a club maybe more prestigious than Mm -hmm. you've played before. And you end up having to do some time on stage, and the comic who invited you in encourages you slash sets you up yeah. by saying, be real and be raw on stage. Guys, Natterman's been lit. Greer's not here. I need someone to go on. We have one on already. I was, I was there. Sorry, I've been on the list. Greer's, Greer's not here. I need someone. Oh. Uh, oh. Oh, yeah, Pete. Let's put Pete on. I don't know him. Put him on. He's funny. You can do it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Bring him up in two. I don't know if I should do that. You're getting stage time, buddy. Yeah, no, I want to work here, but I'm going through a thing, and let's do it another time. No, no, no. Let's do it right now. You could talk about that thing. That's what we do. No, I, it's a breakup. It's fresh. You have a breakup, you go up there and talk about it, man. Yeah. Remember when Tick got cancer? She talked about it that night. 
Now, is your situation worse than that? Probably, yes. But this is the art, man. This is what you do. Yeah, come on. Sack up, man. Get in there. You think so? Yes, no, I'm not thinking. I know. No, don't. Go. I'll record it just in case. Yeah, record, record, record your set. Yeah. This is a moment that you made into a television show because it was a real-life turning point in your life. In my real life? Yes. Uh, in my real life, I got married when I was 22. Uh, I was raised uh, evangelical, religious, uh, Christian. And uh, that's kind of what you did. I went to a Christian college and you kind of pair off. Like everybody graduates and gets married to someone they met. And then in real life, not on the show, in real life when I was 28, my wife uh, left me. So the character on the show, me and my wife and everybody involved is obviously different, but it's inspired from a very, very true place. How did you feel when you and your wife broke up? In real life? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to presume that sad is part of it. Yeah, I I was sad. I remember we were living upstate and we had moved upstate and she told me that she was leaving me and it was obviously very sad. But it was weird because there was also part of me that felt a strange relief because I was so sad upstate and we had grown so much distance between us and and I really, I, I've said this before, but I thought I had died. Like, I, I thought I had died and I was in some sort of purgatory place. Of course, a Christian kid, of course you might fantasize that, that that's what was happening. So I'm asking God to, like, wake me up because I felt so much distance and there was no love. And it was very cold and lonely. And I was taking the train an hour and a half to do three minutes at UCB at 11 p.m. And then take the last train home. So it's like four hours of commuting to do three minutes of comedy. And you're just like, Jesus, the you get home and, and, and your wife is very cold and distant I, because I didn't know she's in love with somebody else and she feels terrible about that and she's living this double life. So when she told me, I would say it was probably 80 or 90 percent devastation and shock. I didn't see it coming at all. Uh, and then there was but there was this glorious sort of 10 percent of like, oh, I can I can get out of here. I understand that when you, you know, when you're living an hour and a half train ride from comedy, um, <laughs> my mistress, <laughs> you feel yeah, you feel alienated. You feel alienated from it. But I, I also wonder to what extent you felt at home in that three minute stand up set at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater because you know I've performed at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. A relatively small proportion, I'm guessing, of the audience and people on stage are evangelical Christians. (laughs) I would say almost nobody there is probably exactly (laughs) my breed of Christian. And that's that's kind of the fun of the show is is you take somebody that is basically wrapped in bubble wrap. You know, he wrapped himself in bubble wrap. His parents wrapped him in bubble wrap. His his faith community. What was it like for you? Forget forget Pete in quotation marks, the character – What's it, what I, was it like for you? Like, did you feel at home in that world? To what extent did you, especially when you, when your life first hit that big turn when you were 28? I, I, absolutely. That, that's the, that was my kind of secret, I guess, was that I never feel more alive or at home than when I'm with comedians or doing stand-up. I, you know, to this day, I, I joke that if uh, my girlfriend and I have kids, the, the children should ask me for whatever it is they want after daddy's done a set. Because it's, <laughs> I, I've never done hard drugs, but it's got to be like that. I mean, it's this incredible, invincible, wonderful, 
seen, you feel seen, you feel heard, you feel like the audience was seen and heard. It's very uniting. There's a lot of solidarity. There's a lot of beauty. There's joy. There's interconnectedness. It's kind of everything... I feel like the meaning of life is kind of encapsulated sometimes in really good comedy. It's like you want to be heard, the audience wants to be heard, and everybody's looking at each other for one br brilliant moment and being together in one brilliant, kind of like at the end of Avatar when they're all holding. That's what a room full of laughing people can be. But then also, you know, growing up in a community, and I don't want to poo-poo the evangelicals, but you you just didn't get the same, and I'm sure you know from talking to countless comedians, you didn't get the same premium of, like, truth-telling honesty, like uh, talking about their shadow selves, talking about their dark sides, talking about their weird feelings and habits, which everybody has. So suddenly I'm with these people who, instead of steering away from a topic because it's too touchy, they drive right into the thick of it, and then we laugh about it. I'm talking about offstage. It's Bullseye. My guest is Pete Holmes. He stars in the new HBO show Crashing, which premieres February 19th. Did you ever have the kind of personal relationship with God or Christ that is so central to many evangelical Christian people's lives? That's a great question. I thought I did. I absolutely thought I did. I would say I, I guess everybody, wherever they're at, currently probably thinks they're closer to the ideal that they've always been going for. Hopefully that's so, you know what I'm saying? Like now I feel much closer to being able to commune with some sort of cosmic energy of the universe, whether we look at that from a, a materialist perspective or a spiritual perspective. Whatever's happening, there's a way to feel very connected and uh, energized by the electrons dancing in your body. And we, we've all experienced that transcendence through art or music or comedy or conversation or whiskey. You know, like these things can help us get there. And when I'm in that space now, I look back at what I used to claim as Christ and I was like, oh, that's not even close. I'd like to say in 10 years, I'll look back at what I'm doing now and say that wasn't even close. I'd like to keep moving closer and closer to some sort of union to the source of the universe. Um, but when I look back at 22-year-old Pete, who's getting married, he his Jesus was uh, the polite Jesus, was nice Jesus, um, loving people, but in kind of like a friendly, it was a friendly God. And now uh, it continues to mature. But it was like my, my imaginary friend. And I don't mean that to say Jesus isn't real. I just mean that's how I treated him. I talked to him. I asked for things. I thanked him when he gave me those things. But it was very – it was baby steps towards what ended up being a much longer uh, discussion and kind of exploration of what is divine. I, I want to play another clip from my guest uh, Pete Holmes' HBO show, which is called Crashing. And you've just done this set at a real prestigious – comedy club. I think it's unnamed in the show, but a real prestigious comedy club. It's sort of a surprise drop-in set. You just happened to be there. Yep. They needed somebody. Mm -hmm. And the comic who wasn't there, whose slot you filled, comes up to you at the bar mm -hmm. uh, after the show. Let's listen. Hey, man. You bumped me. What? Yeah, you bumped me. Took my spot. See, I'm supposed to do Colbert tomorrow night. If I have a bad scent on Colbert tomorrow, you're going to be halfway to with it. I'm sorry, man. They, they said I had to go on. Somebody had to go on because you were late. No, I wasn't late. I was on time. The show was running early. I'm sorry. Yeah, look at you. You got that same stupid look in your eyes I had 20 years ago. 
What do you want to do before stand-up? I went to school to be a youth pastor. <laughs> youth pastor? I can see that. That's, that's you. That's good. Hey, man, look, you can help a lot of people. Because you definitely ain't helping nobody here with that that you just did. I just had a really hard day. I've seen a lot of people crash and burn. And I want to save you from a crash and a burn. Quit. By your head. One of the things that's so interesting to me about your, I mean, you can probably describe better for the those members of the audience who haven't already intuited it from the way you talk, the way you present on stage, what the audience sees when you stand up in front of them, you know, mm-hmm. when they say, ladies and gentlemen, Pete Holmes, and you walk out on the stage in front of an audience where it's not your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel like people see? They see someone who looks like they just dropped off their son at the show or something. Like, I look like a dorky dad. And, I, you know, this is something that we touch on in the show a lot. It's an interesting charge to be to have heroes like Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano and, uh, you know, Jim Gaffigan and Dimitri Martin. Clean, uh, kind of polite guys. And... All of those guys, every example that I just named, was pretty much forged in these clubs where a lot of the guys, and I say this with a lot of love, I call this to their face, these are my scumbag friends. And that's what I think is really lovely. Uh, You know, some of them drink too much or they gamble or they do drugs or they get hand jobs at, at massage palaces. You know what I'm saying? But what an unlikely and kind of be- – and not kind of – a beautiful place to find grace. You know what I mean? And that's what's so exciting about the show is there's so many leather jackets. There's so many ACDC T-shirts and chain wallets and cigarettes and whiskey. And when you go up and the audience, as you're saying, sees a guy who looks like had he brought up a drink with him, it would have been chocolate milk. What do we do with that? But that's that's something you, you flatter yourself. It would have been <laughs> buttermilk, maybe whole milk, uh, whole buttermilk. Yeah. yeah, not even chocolate milk. I'm not even that nasty. Yeah, the world of New York stand-up comedy, and this was probably even more true five or ten years ago than it is now. Yeah, um, it has a very specific tone, mm-hmm. um, and that tone can be pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. It's not universally brutal, but. If you think of comics, uh, if you think of what is, you know, a great New York stand-up comic, you might think of um, the late Patrice O'Neill, mm-hmm. who all he did was tear people apart mm-hmm. all day long, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, or e- even a, a, an alternative comic like Todd Barry, who um, that's also all he does, <laughs> at least in every interaction I've had with him. He's a very nice man. No, the, it, it doesn't want you. That's one of the reasons why... Uh, New York is the perfect place. People ask me if we consider doing it in L.A., and I'm like, absolutely not. New York is the perfect embodiment of comedy. It doesn't need you. It doesn't want you. It won't notice if you pack your bags and go home. It will keep pulsing. Mike Birbiglia told me he was a consultant on our show and my dear friend. He said one of the mantras of the show is, like, if you're not telling secrets, who cares? And I just thought that was beautiful. And every episode we tried to tell some secret. And sometimes the secret was guys like Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld, especially when they were starting, um, and guys like me who wanted to be like – who want to be like them, follow guys like Patrice whose closer – again, brilliant, hilarious, wouldn't change it for the world. I'm a huge fan – was about strange sex acts. And then you go up 
And so many of my jokes, especially starting out, and we explore this on Crashing, it were about like road signs or something I read on the back of an ice pack. These are the types of jokes that I like. Since I've developed, I've gotten a little bit, you know, I'll go into sexual stuff or whatever, but it's still from that sort of perspective. We'll finish up my conversation with Pete Holmes after a short break. He'll tell me about his last TV show, The Pete Holmes Show on TBS, and how finding out it got canceled was maybe one of the luckiest breaks he's ever gotten. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. It's Oscar season, and we're here to help you sort through the nominees, separate the best from the rest, and maybe even dominate your Oscar pool. Don't show up on the red carpet unprepared. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Just a quick thank you to our sponsor who brings you this message, ZipRecruiter. They understand that posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Right now, Bullseye listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Pete Holmes. He created and stars in the new HBO show, Crashing. It debuts this Sunday, February 19th. He also hosted the Pete Holmes show, a talk show that ran for two seasons on TBS. Were you afraid when you were plunged into this pool of, oh, my life is going to be a completely different thing than it than this life that I had anticipated and planned for for the first 28 years of my life? Yeah, I guess I was afraid. I was afraid on a very basic level. I had never paid a bill. I had never found my own apartment. What were you scared of? I mean, were you were you was your biggest fear that you were like culturally out of place and physically uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. Or were you afraid on a deeper and more profound existential level as well. I, I mean, it becomes very real. You know what I mean? When you have uh, a partner and you're there and you're safe, it really feels like you're playing comedy. And now you're really like rubber meets the road. This is the driver's test. We're either going to get our license or we're not. I remember just thinking it was so preposterous that I was going to have sex with someone else. My wife was the only person I had had sex with. And you'd think... And this is another attitude that I'm excited to represent on Crashing. Most movies or TV shows, which I love, a lot of these movies and TV shows, a guy's girlfriend or wife leaves. The next scene is going to be a montage of him having sex with random people. So there's almost this silver lining. It's like, well, the bear was in the cage, but now the sad bear is out of the cage and that bear is going to go get some honey. You know, when you're me, you just don't feel that way. It's actually very sad. You're like... I can't believe I'm going to have to go and meet a girl and be like, where are you from? Like, it almost made me want to, like, throw up at the time to say, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Like, starting again? I'm ter- I I often think that if my wife, God forbid, were ever to leave me, she yeah. and I have been together since we were seniors in high school. Oh, my goodness. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, what? Who would I be in the world? Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Or if she was in a plane that crashed and she disappeared from my life. Yeah. Once I was done crying two years later. Yeah. Who, what? I have no idea what that person is. 
And I'm not here to say that you're in a codependent relationship. I don't think you are because <laughs> you seem, Thanks, like, a re- you seem like a realized that. person uh, in, a, in a beautiful way. But I was absolutely That's the pull quote. That's the pull quote ah, from, this, from this week's episode. Jesse seems like a realized person in a really beautiful way. Yes, there you go. Put it on your fridge. <laughs> yeah. But I was in a codependent relationship for sure. Hugely. There was a joke that got cut from the script, uh, but I'm sure we'll find a home for it. Where this, And it was something that happened in my life. It's someone said, did you read Codependent No More? And then I said, without, I wasn't joking. I said, we were going to read it together. <laughs> that's, that's just true. That's who I was. And I actually went through a number of codependent relationships before I had the necessary single time to do your own damn dishes and buy your own groceries and, and realize that you have to vacuum your car. I'm not saying my my partners always did these things, but you need to pay the bills and you need to occupy your mind. You need to make plans and, and feel like what it's like to just be on your own. That was very essential. A couple of years ago, you made a late night show for TBS called The Pete Holmes Show. Mm-hmm. And it was a very unusual and ambitious show. It was a half hour and... You know, it was not generally topical. Mm-hmm. Um, it couldn't be. The conversations were – the conversations in the interviews were very personal and often with friends of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, there were sketches and other things that were very ambitious about it. It got canceled uh, it, halfway through the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it got canceled, I think, a few months before it stopped airing on television. It did, yeah. Um what was it like for you to have that moment that everybody wants, that moment where, you know, it's like the moment where David Letterman leaned over to Ray Romano and said, let's make everybody loves Raymond, mm-hmm. you know, because he killed in that one stand-up set. Mm-hmm. You had a moment where Conan O'Brien said, why don't you do the show that comes on after me? Mm-hmm. It had your name on it. You tried mm-hmm. to do a lot of things that were different, and it failed. Mm-hmm. Um what was it like for you to be in that place where you had built everything towards this goal mm-hmm. and it just didn't work out? You know, it's funny, uh, not to be contrarian, I don't consider it a failure. I, I don't think you think I consider it a failure either. It did fail. You're co- completely correct. But we did... It's a very funny show. I appreciate that. I think we did... I forget how many episodes. We did 80 or something? Maybe it was more than that. I don't know. But um, we did a lot of episodes, and we <laughs> there is a spin doctor in my head that will find the positive angle. And the positive angle that I found that I stand by is we did exactly the number of episodes we could have done with those restraints and that budget and that schedule before the show would have started eating itself and becoming like a joke. It wasn't necessarily an infinitely sustainable model. I was very grateful for the show, but the whole time we knew there was something a little bit off about the whole thing. We were on after Conan, but we didn't tape the same way Conan did. Conan taped during the day. It aired that night. We taped during the day. We taped another one. Then we taped another one. And those would air in four months. You know what I'm saying? So I'm talking to people in July and we're joking about Halloween. That's a weird experience. It's not exactly what I think people thought and it's not necessarily what I thought the show was going to be at the beginning. I want to know sincerely, did your inner spin doctor, who I will choose to call your inner cognitive behavioral therapist, (laughs) actually convince you of this fact when they called you and said, hey, the Pete Holmes show is off the air? 
Like how quickly did my intercognitive therapist kick in? And how effectively? I will uh, – it's it's not a bad story and it leads to crashing. They called me and I just assumed we were coming back. And I was so cocky. I was sitting on the toilet. I was like, I'm just going to go to the bathroom while I take this call. So th- they called and my manager's like, it's not – they're not picking it up. And of course, just like my divorce, it's very similar. It's a loss. You go, oh, shit, 80%. I'm going to say 80% with my wife, 80% with the show. Then there's this 20% that you're kind of like, okay, what's next? What are we going to do next? And with my divorce and with the show getting canceled, I have these thoughts where I'm like, aren't I supposed to drink? Isn't that what you do? In my experience, you don't drink. Uh, you, you get to that eventually. But uh, with the show, we didn't go like, oh, let's go get messed up. My producer, Oren, Oren Brimmer, came over and we kind of commiserated and we broke it down. We kind of helped each other cognitive therapy each other. I was like, what, what are we doing? Like, again, Berbiglia, he's like, what are we doing here? Like, why are we on Earth? Are, are we on Earth just to kind of like uh, do what we think we can do? Or, or are we really here to like dig deep and find out what is the story I was like, well, clearly it's my divorce. I want to tell the story like of what pain can lead to new and great experiences, like something that you wouldn't have asked for, like I said at the beginning, taking you where you needed to go. And then in that same moment, I was like, well, this is a, this is a Judd Apatow show. And I'm very grateful that I was at a place where I had some access to Judd. So that was a, a Wednesday. And then on Friday, he was shooting Trainwreck. They told me on, he had 15 minutes at 7 a.m. on Friday. And I flew to New York Thursday, and I flew back Friday night. And we had 15 minutes, and we spent the first 14 talking about the movie, talking about stand-up, whatever, shooting, shooting the baloney. And then in that last minute, I was like, I'm coming to you with this idea not because you can make it happen, but because this is your – I think this is your kind of idea – it's about comedy. It's a coming-of-age story, and, it's, and it has heart. And I really think you'll like it. And he, he did like it. He said, uh, go home and, and write 20 pages of everything you remember from what it's like to get divorced, just everything you could possibly remember. And uh, I, th- I think I sent it to him the next day or two days later, uh, and then we pitched it um, to HBO. Judd teases me that all I did in the, in the pitch was – talk about philosophy and Joseph Campbell and, and Ram Dass. I was just telling him, telling HBO what the show was really about. <laughs> and he was like, Jesus, man, you gotta be funny in these meetings. Like, he thought for sure we had blown it. He wasn't mad. He was just like, come on, man. He, he told me, he was like, when I pitch girls with Lena, like, Lena just is Lena. Like, she's like Hannah. She's just funny and quirky. And so she showed them by virtue of being there, what the show would be. But I'm a grown man. I'm 37, and I'm talking about the 28-year-old version of myself, which is kind of who I'm playing. So it's not that. Instead, I'm, like, dissecting what the show is. But, you know, I love HBO, and I took a chance, and I knew they would appreciate what the show is actually about. (laughs) And then it ended up being very funny, so everybody wins. Well, Pete Holmes, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was so fun to get to talk to you. Bullseye? I thought I was saying a ball and a target. I was talking to Pete Holmes, not Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) He he was just here. Well, thank you, Jesse. This is so fun.
Pete Holmes, his new TV show, Crashing, premieres this Sunday, February 19th on HBO. HBO is also home to Pete's latest stand-up special, Faces and Sounds. You can stream that now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Mike Mills. He wrote and directed 20th Century Women, which is up for Best Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards this year. Before he was a feature filmmaker, he was a short film and video director. He worked with bands like Blonde Redhead, Pulp, and Air. In 2010, he directed Beginners. It told the story of a fictionalized version of Mills' dad, who came out of the closet in his late 70s. 20th Century Women, which came out a few months ago, also draws from his family history. This time, he focuses on his mom. It tells the story of Dorothea, played by Annette Benning. She lives with her teenage son, Jamie, in a big house in Santa Barbara, California. To help make ends meet, they rent out a couple of the rooms. In this scene, the family's hosting a dinner party. One of the boarders, Abby, who's played by Greta Gerwig, just told everyone at the table that she's menstruating. And since it's a dinner party in 1979, the news goes over about as smoothly as you might expect. Menstruates. I mean, just say menstruation. It's not a big deal. So start saying it now. Menstruation. No. Yes. Menstruation. Menstruation. Jamie, no. You don't have to. You're saying it like you're scared. Don't say it like you're scared. Say it like it's normal. Menstruation. 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 Not bad. Julian, menstruation. You can say it right now. I'm sorry. Oh, menstruation. Just keep eye contact with me. Who are you looking at? Menstruation. Menstruation. Yeah, that's right. Menstruation. Charlie, you're quiet. Menstruation? Menstruation? No, not like a question. Menstruation. Menstruation. Now, everybody say it together. Menstruation. Like gentle, happy, but casual. And... Menstruation. Mike Mills, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Ah, Thanks so much for having me. Um, You were saying before we went in that you just had an MRI in your knee, and it actually connects with something that I wanted to ask you about, which was, um, you're a middle-aged man. Do you still Do we have to discuss that? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This show's all about real talk. (laughs) Uh, Do I still skateboard? Um, In a very sort of gentlemanly way. What does that mean? Uh, When I grew up, I skateboarded and transitioned like skate parks and vert pools and stuff like that, and then kind of graduated to mini ramps in my 30s and early 40s. And then now as a 50-year-old man, I occasionally rarely get on uh actually the boards from this film uh and the wheels are softer wheels it's a whole different kind of board design from the 70s so it's very like leisurely uh and it's great for just like street skating so i'm bust out my best sort of fake z-town surf style carving methods <laughs> you're, you're really excited about that <laughs> like, very sincerely yeah 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 skating was huge for me skating was how i it was my first, uh, yeah, it's my first real passion. Turned me on to punk music, turned me on to that whole culture, subculture that kind of was the beginning of me in lots of ways, you know, and really like gave me so much. And and I was, you know, a competitive skateboarder. I wasn't, I was like a proletariat skateboarder, you know, like I wasn't outstanding. I was good enough to compete. And um, it was one, it's very creative when you're making up your runs. It's very physical. It's very um, euphoric. Uh, so I have a lot of fond muscle memory 
of it. What was your goal? Like, what did you want? Did oh, you just want to pass time with friends? Professional skateboarder. And I wanted to either be a professional skateboarder or start my own company. Already then, it was such a DIY culture. And that it was kind of just embedded in the in the oxygen of the whole thing that, yeah, I'm, I'm 13 now, but I'm going to own a skate company soon. And that's going to be my future. And uh, I'm going to tour and stuff and be on a team. You know, like, that, that was the basic plan. Like... I grew up with these Depression-era people who are incredibly productive and industrial, and mm, they try to turn everything into a uh, opportunity for a career or something like that. So I guess I grew up in that cloud. But my friends were equally obsessive, and like on rainy days, we made cardboard skateboard pools and did fingerboarding. Like We were obsessed. Did you think of yourself as being as productive as your parents who were obsessed with being productive and practical? Mm. And- Never. Because, you know, like, can we have parents like that who are, my parents are teenagers during the Depression, turn 18 when World War II started, all the friends and them get drafted. Like, that's a different life. And they have an intensity that was much more than me. And maybe I kind of, as I grew older, actually kind of became more like them. But as a t- kid and a teenager, I'm like, oh, crap, these people are so intense and never take a break and they always do it the hardest way possible and never complain and like it's kind of endless wave of of um, self-sacrifice. Did you feel like you, when you were doing something creative, even if it was something like skateboarding, that you had to have like an idea of how that was self-sufficient? Yeah. How it was, uh, how it could be how it could support itself and be in a yeah. way a job? Yeah, but in a completely hegemonic way. Like, my mom didn't have to say one word for me to have internalized that whole idea. My dad is an art historian, museum director. My mom is like a contractor, um, entrepreneurial person. and But they're both really creative people and kind of frustrated artists. And my mom was a pilot and really wanted to be more of a pilot and from the first time I started skateboarding, she was always like, it's like flying, you know. So she was always really into it. And she would come to all the parks. She would drive me to all the contests, you know, and watch and know the names of the tricks and be very pro-risk. She was like the most pro-risk mom I ever met. And uh, so they were integrated into it. They weren't like poo-pooing it. They're like, oh, you're into something and you're super obsessed. Go for it. And you know, as long as I was doing something, they're totally down with that. The thing they weren't down with it was like resting <laughs> or or watching TV. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mike Mills, wrote and directed the film 20th Century Women. It's up for an Academy Award. 20th Century Women is uh, largely about Annette Bening's character. Mm. So she's the, the, even though she's I, – I guess you would say that the boy is the main character because in some ways he's the – um, connecting tissue. He's by no means the protagonist of the mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. Like he is just kind of the thing that everything else moves mm-hmm. around. I wouldn't even say he's the main character personally. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of like a planetary situation, <laughs> and and that's probably the sun. So everything rotates around her. But um, you know, Greta and Elle have a lot of screen time, and they have their own plot lines. You know, and. It's a. It was a really strange relational film to structure, to write, to edit. It's. It was. It barely holds together. Yeah, well, I mean, that's <laughs> to this day. I and definitely kind of by design, kind of by design. But and I like films that do that. I like films that like push at their seams so hard 
that um, there's something really exciting about that. And I really wanted to, like, I have all the different characters narrate at different times. I break all the rules of protagonism. Is that a word? Let's, yeah. let's make it a word. Sure. Protagonism. Was there, like, uh, was there a time maybe after you made your first or second movie that you thought, huh, maybe I should focus on having my protagonist save the cat and then uh, have the have them head out of the house on a journey. Like causality. Yeah, just like have a one, two, three. Yeah. Because that to... is immensely satisfying. Like it's one of the reasons it works <laughs> is because it's in like Gilgamesh and stuff. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, I try a lot. I try a lot. And it just kind of makes my brain faint and fall over. Like I just – I'm not wired that way. I have like a – a disability with that. And also, I just don't believe and I don't enjoy it as a viewer or a reader. Uh, I don't like a lot of transformation in my character, especially in a film. Like in a novel, yeah, because a novel, you it's so much easier to have an expansive amount of time. Uh, in film, you are more physical and real. And uh, I, I don't buy it when epiphanies happen and large transformations happen. I barely buy it in real life. You know, I do believe it does happen in real life, but and in such unpredictable and slow motion ways that it's hard to concretize, you know, which films love doing and um and causality and all the plot tricks which almost every film does of like um, you know, I start off fill in the blank, homophobic, uh scared of society, uh not available to have relationships. I meet X external obstacle person who challenges me to face that thing. Uh, I do things that I think are going to fix the problem. Everything I do actually makes me further away from fixing the problem. I finally have to transform into a place where I see it anew and I'm transformed and better and come with me audience on this journey. I just, that makes me go to sleep. And like, I just... For real though? Because like, Indiana Jones is kind of dope. I don't know. That's a great movie. (laughs) It's super I, like, fun. I like this. I like E.T. Like is a really cool movie. I'm not into like car chases, mousetraps, things like that. I mean, I can I, sort of overstating it. I love like Casablanca. I love Howard Hawks. I love lots of movies that have plots for sure. So but what? I, what is it like? What's the what's the diff? What, what is it? What's the difference? Or what's the thing that you love about Casablanca? Uh, it's not the plot. The plot's just like, or like Woody Allen movies. There's some plot, but it's not why you watch the movie. You know, it's not really what ticked, it's not what's um, valuable about it as a viewer. We'll continue my conversation with Mike Mills after a quick break. He'll tell me about why directing literally dozens of TV commercials over the years helped make him the film director he is today. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. We'll get back to my interview with Mike Mills in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show here at Maximum Fun. Every week, Pop Rocket is like a fun conversation with your best pals about everything that's going on in popular culture, but with more insights than your best pals bring to the table. No offense to your best pals. I bet they're really cool. They really came through at your baby shower. 
Anyway, this week, Pop Rocket has a very special guest host, Jordan Morris. Jordan co-hosts Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy podcast. He's also a writer on Comedy Central's At Midnight. Hey, Jordan, what's going on on Pop Rocket this week? Uh, hey, Jesse, on this week's show, we're going through the official Pop Rocket Facebook group and discussing our favorite topics. We're going to talk Beyonce's pregnancy picks, our favorite comic books, and the most hot-button issue of them all, where are the best chicken nuggets? Oh, that's a tough nugget question. What about boneless wings? I prefer boneless wings. I'm going boneless wings from Ho-Ho Chicken. It's right around the corner from our office. It's hecka good. Okay, anyway, listen to Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mike Mills. He's a writer and director. He's done dozens of music videos, many commercials, and he also wrote and directed the film 20th Century Women. It seems like from watching 20th Century Women that you know, as I, as I was watching it, I, I remember having this thought, which was like, man, look at that bedspread. <laughs> you know, like, look at that. Uh, look at that blanket there. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really something. Mm-hmm. That really feels like something. And then I heard that that blanket came from your parents' house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, OK. Part of what it's about is a creating a, a feeling of, I don't know, I guess verisimilitude or something that is about an accretion of these things that are distinctive in our lives, like the kinds mm-hmm. of things that stick out in memory. Uh, my last movie, Beginners, is really a lot about what you just said, like the accretion of things that become memories, that become your understanding of your life and your understanding of other people. So that's a bit in this film, not as distinctly. And that bedspread made an appearance in both movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's my parents' bedspread from Madagascar, and I grew up with it. And I do kind of believe in magic in a way. There's uh, objects can hold a lot of history and meaning and connection. And that's wearing my mom's jewelry, those little bits of my parents' furniture all through that movie and paintings on the walls and stuff. And because also this ensemble of objects, this little universe of objects, is all my parents' stuff and their their collection represents their thinking in a way. So if I have just not one object but a collection of objects, it does sort of have a uh, a geometric uh, effect, and it's very subtle, but you kind of get this worldview via just the mise-en-scene, right? Well, the, I mean, the, uh, that, that element of movies, the mise-en-scene, the elements of the scene, the things that you see in the frame, uh-huh. tends to have a feeling of – and, you know, it's fine because it's like this partly on purpose, but it has the feeling of the sitcom set, which is to say that it's only after you've watched 15 – episodes of a sitcom that you realize that they're shooting it on the same set that they shot another sitcom that you've seen 50 episodes of, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because that those elements are built to be transparent to foreground the actors talking to each other and right. the jokes that they're making. Right, right, right. And, you know, to just have that amount of specificity mm-hmm. in the frame. I mean, I was thinking of a painting that I saw in the mm-hmm. back of behind, a, I think, dinner table in the yeah, movie. Yeah, that's one painting I grew up with. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's a beautiful Howard Hack painting of flowers, like a dry. Yeah, yeah, like I look at looking at that painting and thinking, huh, look at that painting. That yeah. looks like a painting in a house. Yeah, not like a stand-in for all paintings right, and all. Which houses. often happens in films because you're renting things from prop houses and all yeah. That. Well, I really believe in all that. I, it's not just specificity in the art direction; it's specificity in like characters' choices, characters' biographies, things they say. I definitely believe that unexplained, highly specific things that are drawn from life that are kind of even mysteries to me as a writer. Like, why am I gravitating toward this? I'm not sure. Why do I want to show that my mom 
read Watership Down and Carved Wood Rabbits. I'm not totally sure. I couldn't defend it with Mr. McKee. That rabbit's amazing. But my mom really carved it too. So it, it I feel like there is um, a lot of embedded truthiness, let's say. Let's have another awesome word. Uh, and when you see these things or when you even um, – Moments of the biographies, they're untidy for story. The the film features biographies of the three female characters. And there's lots of details and things that happen to them that I report that are, like I said, they're just not great for dramaturgy or story. But I find them incredibly effective at making the audience believe in the authenticity of the story and the characters and therefore investing in them and just really interesting, uh, often in their mystery, like why am I looking at these Salem cigarettes, why is it important that he's showing me that the mom wore Birkenstocks, you know? But I do feel like there is an, uh, uh, a small buildup of micro points um, that speak to a much larger picture, you know? and I really like that trick. How do you collect all those pieces? I mean, are you able to pour them out or uh, as needed, or do you have to, like, the... grab them as they fly through your mind? Uh, well, these last two films are based on real people, right? So the first part of the process is just kind of remembering everything I can. <laughs> and I and that, actually, that goes on forever, and I do it on these little 3 by or 5 by 7 cards. And I just I have no judgment. I don't care if it like relates to a story or not. I'm actually excited if it seems like completely impossible to put in a movie. And uh, But if it like has a, this truthiness vibe to it or just like it just – you just mm, – what is the word? Like you just – it pulls you in a little bit in a way that you can't describe and you just know that it has to be true. And not that true is such a real word, but like you just – doesn't feel like a story. One thing I read a lot when I'm writing is um, Bukowski's uh, Mockingbird Wish Me Luck. And I'm not really into Bukowski's whole drunkenness and, and misogyny and all that stuff. But he's an amazing sort of William Carlos Williams level concretist, you know. And just writing about the smallest thing and showing how, like, really evocative and grippy these things can be. And he's just amazing at it. And I feel like when I, re- I read him, like, every morning before I start writing, it just attunes you to, like, these little details. Um, and then so I, I accrue all these things from my memory. I write them all down. And that goes on for months to, like, a year. And then I go through and just start picking stuff and, like, trying to see how I could put these kind of, like, collage pieces together. But I like to invent as little as I possibly can in a ways. Um, everybody in the movie, every actor in the movie looks and feels of their age. Mm-hmm. You have all these different ages represented in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Annette Benning is playing the 55-ish year old mm-hmm. mother here, a woman who, with a teenager who uh, had him late. There's uh, these two boarders who are respectively kind of a young adult, like a 20-something and a young middle-aged person. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a kid, and the kid who's 15 was played by an actor who I think when you cast him was 14. Mm -hmm. Was it a choice that you made that you wanted these people to not be a representation of the ages they were but actually be? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And same thing with the beginners, too. It was so key that Christopher was... I mean, he's younger, but wasn't he like 80 when we shot that? So he's like yeah. pretty close. And it really helped also because Christopher was really from close to the right era, like his actual birth, you know, which gave him such access to the character. So if you're the right age, um, it so feeds the piece. And then I guess because my films seem to 
to my surprise, be about families. Families are so much about age in a weird way or where you are developmentally in the life spectrum and then the interrelation of those different points and then the worldview that's so different from those different points. And therein lies actually a good drama. Like therein lies conflict and and uh, things that can butt up against each other and create energy, right? Um, and I was really, obviously, titling it 20th Century Women, I was really interested in having different sort of, and all the women are strong, all the women are mm, uh, feminist by energy, if not also by politics, right? And But there are different forms of feminism that are sort of historically determined. So I'm really interested in age. I'm really interested in where you are in history, you know? Um, and I wanna, then, let's let's play another clip from 20th Century Women because there is a clip that we have that really illustrates that beautifully. So um, Jamie, who's the teenager in the family, has gotten from the young adult female border in the house some books of feminism. Second wave. She's a classic second wave feminist. Yeah, and uh-huh. and uh, he's kind of into them. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for a 15-year-old boy. It's rad. And yeah, it is It is pretty neat. And he has like, among other things, read to his mother part of this essay about uh, the challenges of yeah, being a, a middle-aged woman. It's an amazing Zoe Moss essay called uh, Hurts to be Alive and Obsolete. And uh, she does, like he thinks this is going to be a great, that he finally understands his mom, which mm-hmm. is one of the big things that he's trying to do in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Co- not coincidentally, one of the big things you seem to have been doing by making this movie over the course of six years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I never read an essay like this to my mom, but I was like exposed to therapy, exposed to different things, and I was always trying to learn what my mom felt about stuff. And that was like the number one no-no thing you can possibly do. So it comes partly out of like real memories, real experience. But I have to say, I am using like Robert McKee tools here because it's a classic thing of like, I'm going to fix the problem by doing this thing. And when I do it, it just makes me farther away from the problem than I ever realized. So I do actually have to send a shout-out to Robert McKee, who taught me that trick in that book story. And I totally consciously applied it here. Like, oh, I could do that with my memory. So, uh, yeah. So this is a scene that's that's happened after that. I mean, I appreciate you trying to help. I do. I just think you're taking it too far. This stuff with, you know, the woman's movement, I respect, but it's just... It's complicated, and I think it's too much for him. What are, I don't know what it is that you're talking about. Okay, he's a 15-year-old boy. I know. You're giving him hardcore feminism. and it, But it, he really loves it, and it's really, it's helping him. Helping and him what? It's helping him become a man, this, what you were talking about. Learning it's like, about a female orgasm is helping him be a man. Well, what man do you know that cares anything about that? Look, I mean, that's a miracle. But he's a high school any... kid, okay? It's too much. I'm telling you. It's kind of an it's kind of an intense thing that defense of her her defense of her own emotional space is mm-hmm. so complete. Something I really love to do that this is pointing out is I'm using real historical texts. Those are real essays from uh, Sisterhood is Powerful, and the one that they're referring to in this conversation is the Politics of Orgasm. Which, if I was 15 and opened up that book, I would go for that essay. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, he reads it, and it really impacts his life. There's several scenes after that where you see it, like, ricochet through his life. Um, there's many times in this 
um, movie where I'm taking real cultural events, texts. Uh, it could be Jimmy Carter's speech. could be this book. And it's actually creating my plot points for me. It's creating my conflict for me. It's creating my story for me. But I'm creating out of, like, memory-based characters and uh, these cultural moments. And that was real exciting for me. It was something I had to figure out how to do as I was writing this. Like, how can I put all this together? I wonder if, you know, you made your living for quite a while directing uh, commercials. And, like, one of the things about directing a commercial is if you're really good at it, the essential things that you can be good at are either telling a story in 30 seconds that is compelling and satisfying, which is an insanely difficult thing to do in and of itself, or generating a really clear emotion mm-hmm. in the space of 30 seconds or maybe even 20 seconds or 15 seconds, mm-hmm. depending on what the messaging and, you know, at some point mm-hmm. somebody has to say get an American Express card. Mm-hmm. Um, to change, you know, to change buying patterns, which mm-hmm. is the purpose of commercials, the non-artistic <laughs> purpose of commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wonder, like, how, like, what you learned from doing that and how you think it affects work that you're doing that has, you know, in some ways the opposite object, like the objective in making a commercial is to get people to buy something or to change their consumer behaviors in some way. Kind of. The ads that I do... Like, I do, like, one or two a year. I get to be very choosy. And I've, in, in the ad world, I've had this lucky thing of, like, nailing it the first time. So it's like I got an Oscar on my first run. What was the I, first one? I did these Nike ads. That It wasn't like I got an Oscar, but, like, it really helps. Was suit. it the Larry Johnson grandmama ads? No. Those were great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I've had a very lucky run with the ad thing. And if you do these kind of anthem spots, you do these sort of, like, general brand spots, I never do – ads with products in them it's too reductive and i tend to do these kind of vague if you do an ad with products in it you're reducing products to products (laughs) (laughs) as a filmmaker you just shy away from it because ads has been yes how i make money also how i get to practice being a director and i get to wait for ones that are kind of like the films i'm making and practice my craft because like i said i went to art school and i want to practice you know but the thing that more than ads is doing music videos is how i really started and music videos, I think, are even more like that because you really write them. Ads, you kind of get a board. You get sort of a script, and it's your interpretation of it. Uh, videos, it's all you. You're writing it, and you figure out a lot about basically how to make something that works in three minutes, like as an enjoyable event. So call that story. Call that whatever you want to call it. Uh, Can you give me an example of, like when, of how you, you know, when you were getting started – solved that problem of having a rigorous a rigorous illustration that also fulfilled the 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 mission of in some way illustrating or illuminating a song well so again and then when i did videos i never did i rarely almost never did ones with a band playing so it's always a story as in a chance to make more of like a little film i listened to i would put the music on listen to it on loop all day long at the beginning, you have bad, obvious ideas. An hour, two, or three in, you start to have weirder ideas, which are totally connected in some way, but not like one-to-one. That's what I was the space I was going for. So I did one. Um, there was a song, very grand, dramatic song, romantic, and I invented weirdly in this kind of process of just kind of fuguing out. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a stuffed animal, a world of stuffed animals, and one that decided to kill himself. 
and at the beginning he kills himself, and then all through the video you have kind of like documentary interviews with all the other animals about his life and why they think he killed himself. So it's a little bit Rochamon, it's a little bit whatever, you have like these flashbacks. And that was for me like watching Rochamon for the first time and watching a lot of the films for the first time at Kim's video in New York and sort of figuring out um, what film was about and trying things out, you know. So it was a whole idea, you never saw the band, it was just like this little short film. Well, Mike Mills, I am so grateful that you took all this time to come beyond Bullseye. It was really nice to get to meet you, and I really appreciated a really beautiful film. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for um, being the rare filmmaker who would never utter the phrase, at the end of the day, I'm just a storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the day, I'm just an essayist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, uh, Mike Mills. His film, 20th Century Women, is playing now in select theaters. We like to end every episode of Bullseye with a recommendation from me. And, hey, my Twitter has been blowing up at the news that the movie Babe Pig in the City is on Netflix now. I don't know if you know this, but my advocacy of Babe Pig in the City has literally merited a mention on the Wikipedia page for Babe Pig in the City. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. So a few years ago, we did a live recording at KPCC in Pasadena, California, our home station. And I came there maybe 12, 18 hours after the birth of my second child. Well, my third child was just born. And that, plus all the people bothering me on Twitter, reminded me of one of my favorite outshots I've ever written. So let's take it back to 2013. Here's me live on stage in Pasadena. Every week on Bullseye, we like to include a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. The world is scary. That's just all there is to it. Life is a terrifying thing. Certainly for many of us, there's joy and happiness and comfort too. But there will be fear and pain. And it takes guts and heart to beat your way past all of that. Which is why one of my greatest heroes is Babe, the little pig (laughs) with the big heart. And why one of my favorite films of all time is Babe, Pig in the City. (laughs) I have a feeling that if you're nodding quietly right now, you've seen Babe, Pig in the City. And if you're giggling, maybe you haven't, because I am as serious as a heart attack. Babe, the first movie, if you missed it, was about a pig who learns to be a sheepdog, though precious few on the farm or anywhere else think that he can. Babe Pig in the City opens with the sheep pig returning home to the farm triumphant. There's even a parade. But it all goes bad. He gets ahead of himself while his owner's fixing the well pump, and calamity piles upon calamity, and long story short, Farmer Hoggett is left disabled in traction, specifically. And it leaves only Mrs. Hoggett to tend the farm. Even before her author's misfortune, Mrs. Hoggett was ceaselessly busy, bustling, baking, bottling, and pickling. But now, having to nurse her husband and pay the bills, she found life considerably more challenging than she had ever anticipated. Before long, two men showed up. Two men in suits, 
Men with pale faces and soulless eyes. Such men could have come from only one place, the bank. They can't make ends meet. So Babe and Mrs. Hoggett leave. The plan is that they'll go to a grand state fair to earn the money they need to save the farm. But something goes wrong, they miss a connecting flight, and they're left to fend for themselves alone in the big city, a huge city. The city in Babe, Pig, in the City seems to be every city piled on top of every other city. It has the canals of Venice and the opera house from Sydney and all the skyscrapers in the world. The narrator calls it a place filled with dark corners and endless possibilities. It's no place for animals or old ladies. Not long after they arrive, Mrs. Hoggett is swept into a chaotic street fight. She ends up getting hauled off to jail. And then Babe is by himself. I guess Babe is a grown-up pig, but he's really a child. Everything in the world is new to Babe, and he's just putting together the pieces. But he knows that he loves Mr. and Mrs. Hoggett, and he knows he has to save the farm, and he has kindness in his heart. And he has this little bit of advice that he picked up on his way out of town. Can you come with me, Fly? I wish I could, dear, but it's you they want. Please. Stop it now. You're a brave pig, and babe, more often than not in this uncertain world, fortune favors the brave. It's a cruel city. It's no time before he finds himself in a traveling show playing a porked dinner served by a clown to a gang of world-weary apes. They tell him there's a reward at the end for him. He thinks maybe it's enough to save the farm. But the truth is, there is no reward. Just tell me. There is no reward, is there? Was there ever such a thing? Oh, little pink thingy, this is the city. As Bob always says, what do you say, Bob? It's all illusory. It's ill and it's for losers. No, that wasn't it. You know, that stuff about no yesterday and no tomorrow. All you got is this actual nowness. The past is gone and it's for the future. Yeah, no guarantees, my little pork pie. It's a dog-eat-dog world and there's not enough dog to go around. So you look after number... what's he? Get my trip? I'm not a pork pie. Whatever you say, cute pie. I'm not any kind of pie. I'm just a pig on a mission. Here's the thing. Babe isn't a superhero. He's not extraordinarily capable. He's timid. He isn't even especially smart. But he's loving and he's brave, no matter what. There's a scene in the movie that upset some critics. They said it was the kind of thing that children shouldn't see. Babe's running through the streets of the city at night. He's skidding around corners flying through shadows. Behind him is a snarling bull terrier. And this bull terrier, eventually it catches up on a bridge over a canal, jumps at Babe, mouth open, going for the neck, knocks Babe off the bridge. Babe comes a millimeter from death. Something broke through the terror, flickerings, fragments of his short life. The random events that delivered him to this, his moment of annihilation. As terror gave way to exhaustion, Babe turned to his attacker, his eyes filled with one simple question. Why? 
why. The dog follows Babe off the bridge and into the water, but he's pulling a chain behind him and it wraps on the bridge and it wraps on the dog's leg. And for a few seconds, the dog is suspended with his face in the water and he's drowning. There are other animals watching this whole thing transpire and one by one, they look and they turn away. They shut down. And by this time, Babe has paddled over to the shore, and he's there shivering. And he looks at this dog with his face underwater, this dog that just tried to snap his neck. And he jumps back in the water, and he pushes a boat over, and he saves the dog. I cry every time. In fact, I'm halfway to tears right now. Because in the face of danger, Babe is brave, but he's also kind. Brave and kind. Not strong, not big, not bright. Babe has been given nothing. His best aspects aren't inborn. What makes Babe special are the qualities he's chosen. Surrounded by adversity, facing mortality, he's brave and he's kind. In both of the Babe films, he's staring down death. That was the plot of the first one, although people seem to forget it. For Babe, the choices were become a sheep pig or head to the slaughterhouse. In the very first scene of Pig in the City, as Babe leads the parade through his country town, the returning, conquering champion, we see above him some skywriting letters. H-A-M. They cut to Babe, and then they cut back to the sky, where the skywriters are finishing spelling out champ. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and there's not enough dog to go around. And it's not just Babe. We're all alone in the world sometimes. We all have to face fear and pain, and death is the one thing that none of us will escape. We can't choose not to live in a world with pain and fear and death. We can only choose how we live in that world. We can only hope that in our darkest moments, we're like Babe, that we're brave and we're kind. And if we are, as it was for Babe, things will turn out okay. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Our show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or fire up your favorite podcasting software and search for Bullseye. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.